Genesis chapter 9, 18 through 29. Last week we looked at how the rainbow was God's sign to Noah. It was a sign to Noah's children, which we're part of. But it's also a sign to all air-breathing animals. And uh, we're told that animals can't see colors. Are they sure? Come on. Why would you wave a red flag in front of a bull? Hmm? Hmm? Just a thought. <laughs> but the rainbow is a sign that God will never again destroy the world, the entire world, with floodwaters. Uh, after Hurricane Katrina... Uh, several years back, uh, some of us loaded up a bunch of items that they were needing down there, and we went down to the coast of Mississippi where Calvary Chapel had a distribution point. And we got to witness firsthand the destruction of floodwaters, uh, those on the Gulf Coast anyway. By the time we got down there, the waters had subsided, and we interacted with some of the people, helping them clean up their homes and that kind of thing. But in talking to some of those people that lived near the coast, uh, we heard uh, what we could, you couldn't call anything but horror stories. And one young man was telling us that how when the flood waters, the flood surge came in, he actually swam from rooftop to rooftop to try to find safety. And I thought, my goodness. So... Uh, as we traveled down there, we saw boats that had been tied up in the coastal harbors that were sitting miles inland along the major highways. And it is comforting then when you see that kind of thing to know that God says, I will never again destroy mankind, all of mankind, with floodwaters. And here we are now uh, with a hurricane sitting off our coast right now this morning. So we have the promise, the beautiful promise of a rainbow. It's a comfort to anyone who has ever battled floodwaters. In the book of Ezekiel, chapter 1, verse 28, the prophet Ezekiel, he sees the glory of God and he sees it in the likeness of a rainbow. Revelation 4.3, uh, let me just read you that verse. And he who sat there was like jasper and sardis stone in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne in the appearance of an emerald. God has chosen to surround himself with a gem-colored rainbow, an absolute beautiful in glorious way for our God to be seen. So when we see a rainbow, think how God has chosen it to represent, to signify his covenant with man. It's just God saying, hey, I never again will destroy the world by water. And so God gives us this beautiful arc of colors and it's like his signed document to the world. Several years back, I had a good friend, and we would go out to dinner. And when he would buy, he would sign his 
credit card receipt, Mickey Mouse. He showed me this. No one ever refused it. So we would have dinner on Mickey Mouse. You know? The point I'm trying to make, though, is we sign promissory notes, we sign contracts to verify the, you know, our word, and it's a contract that is binding. God says, you can look at my rainbow, and that's my contract to you. That's my covenant to you. How much more glorious is a rainbow than a, perhaps a land deed in your hand or something? So let's jump into today's text, Genesis 9, and we'll look at verses 18 through 29. Now the sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. And Noah began to be a farmer, and he planted a vineyard. Then he drank of the wine and was drunk, and became uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father, and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and went backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father's nakedness. So Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him. Then he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants he shall be to his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth. And may he dwell in the tents of Shem. <clears throat> and may Canaan be, Canaan be his servant. And Noah lived after the flood 350 years. So all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Noah, his sons, they go out of the ark. Canaan happens to be the only grandchild that is mentioned in chapter 9. And many times scripture will refer to someone's grandson as their literal son. So don't be um, stymied by that. And Canaan is Noah's grandson. But years have passed. Noah has left the ark. Noah now has grandchildren who are at least in their late teens, probably even maybe their early 20s. And Noah's a farmer. He's planted a vineyard, and he's making and drinking wine from that vineyard. And unfortunately, we have here an example. We have an illustration of the foolishness of drunkenness. Now, Scripture does not tell us drinking is wrong or sinful. But I can tell you outright, being drunk is sinful. And there's a fine line between the two. We've read just where Noah, this great man of faith, Noah, who did all that God commanded him, Noah, used of God to preserve the human race and the animal breathing uh, kingdom, he falls victim to wine and drunkenness. 
This is the only negative thing that is said about Noah in Scripture. It's the only thing that we read where this great man of God was foolish. Noah, he takes the wine, he drinks it, and he is drunk. You might even say blind drunk. He has really tied one on. <laughs> and all that will now happen to Noah is the results of his drunkenness. As a Christian, you and I, we work, we live, uh, strive to have a life, our lives be a good witness unto Christ. Drunkenness can destroy that in one day. So why in the world would we purposefully put ourselves in such a vulnerable position by drinking and becoming drunk. Nothing good has ever come about from drunkenness. You know, we all have inhibitions, and many times those inhibitions come out when we are drunk, and many times those inhibitions should be left in. Let me tell you, keep them in the closet. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> we say and we do things that we would never otherwise say and do. And when we sober up after a drunkenness, you still have the same problems. Only now they're usually magnified because you don't have as much money to deal with those problems because you spent it getting drunk. But anyway, it is a statistical fact that one out of eight people who ever take a drink of alcohol will have a lifelong problem with alcohol. One in eight. That's a staggering number. That should sober anyone up right there. No one who takes their first drink, no one who ever takes their first drink or smokes their first marijuana cigarette or who uses illegal drugs, they never consider, never think about, this just might be my Achilles heel here. This thing could destroy me. We don't think that way. The problem with drunkenness and addictions, they bring about this temporary euphoric feeling, this high, this buzz, but that soon grows into a dependency. And this euphoric feeling then develops into a chemical need in our life, thus alcoholism. And it is a true disease because we become totally dependent upon it. And this is just my humble opinion. This is just my way of looking at things. The biggest plague on the United States of America, on our nation, is the desire of illegal drugs or alcohol. That's our biggest problem. Man not only here in America, but around the world, attempting to escape reality. And if you have ever dealt with a person who is addicted to drugs or alcohol, you know firsthand the horrors of that person's life. 
al alcohol happens to be different than illegal drugs because it's legal. We say it's okay. So it is different in that regard. But there are millions upon millions of people who suffer the consequences of alcohol addiction or simply put, drunkenness. That's all it is. And I would venture to say every adult that is sitting here this morning has dealt with someone who has a severe alcohol problem. It's too, too common in our nation. But not only is it a problem from the person that is doing the drinking, not only does the person that is drunk suffer, but the entire family suffers. I personally know a man whose wife had a drinking problem, and he, to keep his children safe, when he went to work, he would disable his wife's van where it would not start and she could not drive. Those are the kind of steps you have to take when you deal with someone who's addicted to alcohol. Eventually, that marriage came apart. Even though they had the means to pour money into rehabilitation, into different clinics and all these things, that marriage still came apart because of alcoholism or drunkenness. You can ask that father, you can ask that mother what their opinion is on social drinking, and they don't have anything good to say about it. But the problem with social drinking you may be able to handle it without becoming a drunk. And that's the case for many people. But how about that person that's watching you? How about that one who does not have the willpower to avoid drunkenness? They, too, perhaps are watching you. You have to say to anyone, be very careful with that. Mom and dad, you may be able to handle it, but that doesn't mean your children can. And you would think that as we grow older, supposedly wiser, we would become aware of the pitfalls of drunkenness. Noah was over 600 years old when he gets soused and goes into his tent. Over 600 years old. That's living a lot of years, by the way. Noah, not only did that, he plants a vineyard. He crushes the grape. He ferments the wine. And he gets drunk. Blind drunk. <laughs> it's a premeditated act of foolishness on Noah's part. You would have thought, Noah, you're wise enough, you're old enough to know better. But he doesn't. And of all the good things that are said of Noah in Scripture, how he's a great man of faith, he's an ark builder, he's a man that did all that God commanded, he's the father of all of mankind after the flood, Noah is also very, very foolish 
when it came to wine and being drunk. You can't say anything else. And the text doesn't hide it from us. Noah, he goes into his tent. He becomes drunk. And he takes off his clothes. There you go. That makes sense. (laughs) And Noah's sons see his nakedness. And they see the nakedness of the father. And you have to think, what are you doing, Noah? What can be going through your head that you will expose your children to this? Noah perhaps thought he would go secretly into his tent and sin. Secret sin. There is no such thing. Secret sin, by the way. The sin will not remain in the tent, will it? It won't stay in there. And we're puzzled. As believers, we're puzzled at the behavior of Noah, this righteous man. And without getting into graphic details, let me try to explain to you um, as delicately as I can the episodes that go on in Noah's tent. Noah's there. He's sleeping off his drunkenness. Verse 24. And no one knows what his younger son has done to him. This, of course, is speaking of Canaan, his grandson. Something has transpired in that tent that causes Noah great concern. Again, I'm going to try to be delicate with this. When Scripture speaks of a man knowing his wife, it means they have had sexual relationships. Adam knew Eve. He had sexual relationships with her. If Canaan had only looked upon Noah's nakedness, Noah would have had no way of knowing because he's been passed out. He would have no way of knowing that he had been violated if it was only Canaan viewing him. Also, the behavior of Shem and Japheth, who walk in backwards and cover their dad with a blanket, Noah awakens and he is indignant. What brought about this indignant feeling upon Noah? Well, he's so indignant that he pronounces a curse upon Canaan. And curse, he curses Canaan that he will be the slave or he'll be a servant of servants to his brothers. And then Noah blesses Shem and, and, and Japheth. I only say this, and I'm not going to dwell on it a lot. Something sexually invasive has transpired in Noah's tent. You have to come to that conclusion if you read Scripture correctly. And we'll let it go at that. Now, what is our position to be upon drinking and being drunk? First thing I want you to know, I am not soft on drinking whatsoever. But I cannot teach what Scripture does not forbid 
Scripture does not forbid us from drinking. It forbids us from getting drunk. Now, there seems to be two camps on this. Many people absolutely think drinking is one of the seven deadly sins. (laughs) My mother was of that camp. You know, if you drink, straight to hell, do not pass gold, man. No question about it. And they go so far as to proclaim that when Jesus turned water into wine, it was non-alcoholic wine that Jesus made. And you go, huh? (laughs) And you say, give me a break. On the other side, you have people who cite the Apostle Paul telling Timothy, take a little wine for your stomach's sake. They say, Paul is telling Timothy to be a drunk. No, he isn't. He is simply telling Timothy, take a little wine like you would medicine in small doses to help the infirmities of your stomach. Take a little wine, not drink gallons. (laughs) So I'm saying all that to say this. If you feel you must drink, I'm not going to condemn you. I'm really not. Unless you become drunk. And then I will condemn you because Scripture speaks of not being drunk. So what is drunkenness? Point oh eight. <laughs> the law has described it for us. We don't have to wonder what it is. If you're point oh eight alcohol and you get pulled over by a cop, you are drunk and you are going to jail. Question solved. <laughs> That's true in Alabama and most states. You know what that amounts to? It amounts to about two beers within an hour. That's what it is. The state, the law has said you are legally drunk at .08. You're there. So we don't have to wonder what drunkenness is. The law has told us. (laughs) Now, if you're a beer drinker, that doesn't seem like a lot of beer. That's a couple beers. Consider this, though. Why... Does a drunk person try to appear like they're not drunk? They have sit there, bothered to drink to get drunk, and then they want to act like they're not drunk. I can walk, you know, and here they go. (laughs) Why are you trying to act like you're not drunk if you have drinking to get drunk? Don't make sense. So the law has stepped in for us, and they've told us what drunkenness is. Let me also say this. I do not drink. For me, it's a personal thing between me and God that God has forbidden in my life. I do not have, quote unquote, the liberty to drink. I can't say that of you. That's between you and God. But I can say that of me. I do not have that liberty. For me, drinking is a sin. Not only the getting drunk part. Now, here's the good thing. I definitely believe my life is better by not drinking. Why? Because I used to drink, and I know what it's like. I was a beer drinker. And if I'm completely honest, in my beer drinking days, I began to look forward to that afternoon beer a little too anxiously. You know what I'm saying? I began to look forward to that cold one in the afternoon a little too much. 
Now, I don't drink, so that gives me the right to condemn anybody who does drink. No, no. <laughs> and you hate that when people get off on that tangent. But I can tell you this, honestly, with Scripture as the authority behind me, be very careful with your drinking. Be very careful with it. Drinking is a habit that can sneak up on you regardless of your age. Ask Noah, who got drunk at over 600 years old and all that went on with his tent and the cursing of his grandson and so forth. Proverbs 21, it tells us, wine is a mocker, intoxicating drink arouses brawling, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Noah, a tremendous man of faith, he spends 120 years building an ark. God calls Noah righteous. He was the only righteous man on earth before the flood. And he has this tremendous mark, this tremendous act of foolishness, this blemish on his character because Noah got drunk. How Noah wishes that would have never happened. I knew a Christian man back in Modesto, California. Rick was his name. Rick had a problem with drugs. One day Rick told me, he says, I am on top of drugs. Drugs are not on top of me. That was Rick's way of saying he could control his drug use and keep it as a social thing. But Rick had a history of abusing drugs. He was in, a, in and out of rehabilitation and all that kind of thing. Well, Rick got sober, and he was sober for a few years, and he got married, and he had two little girls. But shortly after Rick made that proclamation to me that he was on top of drugs, Rick died of an overdose. And he left behind a grieving wife and two fatherless little girls. And it isn't only Rick who thinks they can handle their addiction to drugs or alcohol. Whether that addiction is what we would consider slight or severe, wine and strong drink mock their user. And here's the bad news. Drugs are worse than wine. They're more addictive. So my Christian friends, be wise. Learn from Noah. And it's been said, the sign of a wise person is one who can learn from the mistakes of others. And I think if Noah could talk to us, he'd want us to avoid drunkenness at all cost. So allow Noah's mistake, allow it to speak into your life. 
allow it to grab your heart, allow it to have its effect of why it's in Scripture. Because you see, Noah, because of his drunkenness, he curses his own grandson because he knows he was part of the problem there by being drunk. How tragic that story is. How tragic it is for a grandfather to have to curse his own grandson because of his drunkenness. Be wise. Learn from the mistakes of others. Amen? Amen. Let me get you to stand. We'll close in prayer. Father God, when we pray what we call the Lord's Prayer, we ask you to lead us not into temptation. And many times, Lord, we will toy with, we will play with temptation in the form of alcohol, uh, borderlining on just absolute sin. Cause us to be wise, Lord. Cause us to understand that <clears throat> we're very prone to sin. And so help us to avoid those temptations. The temptation of drinking to be drunk, Lord. We can look around. We can see how many lives it has destroyed. That's not a mystery. It's all around us. And we don't want to be part of that, Lord. And Lord, I, I'm sure if Noah was here and could talk to us, he would advise us against it. So let us learn from this righteous man who slipped and fell and was drunk, Lord, and then all that came about because of it. Let us take it to heart and be wise in our dealings with alcohol, with drugs, with anything that's addictive, Lord. Give us that strength and courage to be godly. So we pray for that, Lord. And Lord, we pray for those that we know that struggle with alcohol or struggle with drugs. We lift them up in prayer, Lord, and ask you to just uh, deliver them, show them the path of righteousness, and help them to walk in it, Lord. And all of us know somebody. All of us know someone who struggles in that area. It's so prevalent in our society, Lord. So help us. Help us to stand firm. Help us to be that good witness to you, Lord. We pray for this and ask for this. In your name, Jesus. Amen.